You're listening to Radio Activism, a production of the Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte. So when we talk about activism, a lot of people, when they hear that word, they think about marching in the streets, they think about joining organizations and writing letters and showing up at town halls. But another really important part of social change is understanding the psychology, our own psychology, that of people very different from ourselves, how we talk to each other, what to do when conflict arises. David Bedrick, whom we'll be talking to in a moment, is a psychologist and an attorney, and he recently published a book called Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. And I think that link, individual and social change, is really key. David is just brilliant on many levels. For example, how he understands things that look like personal problems, like addiction or overeating. A lot of times those things have deep societal roots. And often, if you look deep enough, there's one kind of violence or another. And so if you look at it that way, healing on an individual level is part of healing a community. And it's hard. As probably every one of us knows, changing even a bad habit is hard. And listening to people who think differently from you is hard. Let's go now to David Bedrick. Welcome, David, to Radioactivism. Thank you. It's good to sit here with you. Great to be with you. Now, you are kind of an unusual combination, a a lawyer and a therapist. (laughs) And you say in your book that you were born an activist. What do you mean by that? Tell Mm. us about your path. Mm. Well, I think I became an activist, one, because my natural inclination. But then I grew up in a Jewish family, and it was a violent family. I had a father who used fists and belts not out of even the desire to educate, not that that would be okay, but out of his rage. And then I had a mother who was, we would say, fairly disempowered. That meant that she couldn't say, oh my gosh, what's happening, or stop it, or even what I would later call bear witness. That means to say, I saw it. That means to not deny, that's not really happening, dismiss it, it's not a big deal, or somehow hold me, the victim, we would say, accountable. Maybe you shouldn't have said that to your father. So I, for some reason, when living in that environment, I studied that. I was like, what's going on? How come people are like that? Why are they doing that? How come they don't see what's happening? So one violent and the other pretty much total denial. Total denial. That's right. Yeah, Even obvious things that my mother would be there for. One of the things I learned from her is the importance of witnessing I learned that in counseling, listening to people who are hurt or abused, and saying it's important to believe, see, not deny, dismiss, but then as an activist socially. So when somebody says something or brings up an issue related to sexism or racism, then I think consciously, is there denial, dismissal, or blame going on here? So that teaching my mother gave me, you could say, stayed with me. I didn't want to be that. Right. You could say. So learning, not by example, but by the opposite, really. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you also had a very strong sense of social justice from the earliest age, starting with challenging your teachers in Hebrew school about Mm -hmm. being the chosen people. (laughs) Making me smile. I had forgotten about writing about that. My best friend, he would be okay with me mentioning him, was Jimmy Vallone, 
he was Italian. My neighborhood was Jews and Italians. And he went to the Catholic Church, and I went to Temple to take Hebrew school and learn to read and be bar mitzvah, etc. And of course, not of course, but the uh, rabbis would say, Jews are the chosen people. Now, I didn't know what that meant on any deeper level or different kinds of relationships with the vine. I just heard that and thought, but what about my friend Jimmy? That's what I was a kid. What about my friend Jimmy? And the rabbi didn't give me an explanation that was satisfying. I can't remember what he said, but it was somehow dissing Jimmy. <laughs> and then that got me upset. We had an argument and they basically threw me out of that Hebrew school. And I went to another Hebrew school which was more conservative, more stricter one. And I started off right away. What do you think of my friend Jimmy Malone? He's Italian. Is he a chosen and why not? And what does that mean? I got dumped out of that Hebrew school. <laughs> I ended up getting bar mitzvah because that was going to be the family plan. But I went to the most orthodox temples you could go to because they weren't going to throw me out. <laughs> and they would, would teach me. And we didn't fight about that. I sort of figured out other things to do. Yeah. But you had this deep inner sense of equality and fairness, mm -hmm. which is so interesting to me because not everybody has that inborn. Like sometimes mm -hmm. we're taught that or we gain it with experience mm -hmm. as we get older and we see what the world looks like. Of course, you saw injustice in your own household and you broke the cycle. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, I mean, we're here to talk about activism in a social sense, but there's so many microcosms of the kind of activism that we see in society on much smaller scales, including the family. And this question of how you break the cycle, like you didn't grow up to hit you, you know, to become a violent person yourself. I don't think. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And so what allows, what allowed you, what allows others to break vi cycles of violence? This is such a deep question. It, it really is. The, the deep part that's, I wish wasn't true in some way is that some of it doesn't seem to be something that can be learned or taught. It seems to come with the person. I don't mean I'm getting credit for it because I'm remembering and early on in my therapy practice, probably 20 years ago, I worked with a woman and she had been abused in some awful ways and she was really rough with me and yelling if I said something and, and I was like, what am I going to do about this? And I remember going to my supervisor and he said, why do you think she's like that? And I said, well, she's been through this awful abuse. And he shook his head. He said, no. Some people are abused and become the most tender people. Some people are abused and become violent. He said, you have to understand her differently, not to be insensitive to her story, but that's not why she's treating you that way. That's part of her path you have to work with. So, and I've had clients who've come to me who I would never even suggest that they try to do therapy. I'd say it's not good for you because it's not in them to take that kind of a path. I wish they would wake up and I could teach them, but I can see they don't want to. So the interesting part of your question is it's not for everybody. <laughs> I wish I would say everybody can wake up, but I think it's a relatively small percentage of the population that has that part of their nature. And I'm not saying that's making that a superior thing. I'm really not. Some people have a different kind of path, and if they came to me for therapy, I would support that path. I would say to that person, 
doing activist work, doing therapeutic work, doesn't look like you. It looks like you would like to be really good at a certain profession. Go do that. It's gonna, that's the best your life is going to do, and it's flowering. Yeah. That's so interesting because, I mean, what does that mean for people? Okay, let's say somebody grew up in a violent household and they're starting to become violent themselves toward their uh, spouse or their children or whatever, mm-hmm. and they're not on a therapeutic path. What does that mean? This is such a great question for that for that person in that family and then the culture at large because there's many people in the culture that's similar that there's a violence part of their life is going to be violence around them that they are culpable for and creating um, what does that mean for that person it means either the social system will catch that person that means like law child protection law enforcement yeah in that way, psychologically now, I think then it belongs to the community, not just to the family, because it's ending up there. I used to go to court and watch domestic violence cases. And one thing I learned was some of those cases belong in the community. What do you mean? Meaning they're ending up in the court system, not only because they can't work it out or because they don't have a good therapist, but because in some way the community ought to see that situation because it's not just their situation. Not that those the individuals aren't responsible, but meaning we all should be looking at it. It should be in the public square, that problem, and we should be looking at it. It shouldn't be hidden even in the therapeutic office. Well, that brings me to a, a really important point that I think we need to look at, which is there are problems that people take on as their individual problems, which turn out to be like addiction, for example, which turn out to have really deep social roots and economic roots. And how are people treated by their employers, let's say, or or mm-hmm. by society in general? And I mean, I think there's a, a big place for personal responsibility, but there are some things that go far beyond the personal. Yeah, definitely. Addiction is a great example. I mean, if I'm thinking of addiction, as soon as you mention the word, I'm thinking, is that person gay? Is that person trans? Is that person poor? Is that person black? Is that person a white attorney? Right? I'm thinking, because all those situations, is that person a new age person who thinks they should be drinking carrot juice all day and nothing else because they think that's healthy? Is that person a runner? (laughs) Whatever. All those things could be good. Some of those things could be good. But all those things are implying something about a culture. And behind addictions, I've never seen an addiction where the substance, let's stick with substances for the moment and not behaviors that could be addictive. I've never seen a person using a substance in 20 years where they're not hungry looking for something. I'm not saying that the substance is the good nourishment of that need. For instance, um, I'm thinking now of an African-American woman who was addicted to cocaine. And she was very down. She was poor. She was kind of psychologically, you might call her depressed, but she was pressed down in her sense of power in the culture. And I asked her what it was like to do cocaine. She said, I feel like nothing can touch me. She was like, she would sit up, like I'm doing now, you can't see it on the other end. She would sit up and she'd say, nobody could touch me. Like meaning I'm like super powerful, I'm like omnipotent. 
she needed a little taste of that because she felt quite the opposite. So that in helping her, I need to understand that addictive pattern. I need to help her feel a little bit like, quote unquote, she has cocaine. I'm not suggesting literally to take the drug. I'm saying she needs to be a, a deep sense of empowerment. Not everybody would have that process with cocaine. Somebody else could be very different. So in that case, what do you do? I mean, let's say this is somebody who comes from a neighborhood with substandard schools and poor employment opportunities. Yes, that's exactly it. I mean, a therapist, can't, you know, you can't fill that in. Exactly. So that, and this gets to your point. So there's an individual responsibility or healing problem. How do I help her become more empowered relative to the people close to her? How do I help her become more empowered relative to the things inside her that she's internalized that put her down all day, an inner criticism or an internalized sexism and racism that's inside of her now? So she needs some power relative to those. But then some of that problem is not an individual problem. You're, that's what you're implying. I'm a white guy. I have some culpability for her doing drugs. Now, a lot of people wouldn't th- they would think that's crazy. She's taking the drug, not you. It's her choice. I'm part of the nexus of conditions. I'm part of the variables for that. If I can't see that, then I'm dismissing racism and sexism. If I say, this is all you, I'm a white therapist. She comes to me and I say, it's all, and I treat her like it's all you, even if I'm benign in my attitude. Oh, let me just help you with your addiction. If I'm not seeing sexism and racism as part of that thing, then I'm a white person dismissing, just like I was dismissed as a child, right. unintentionally, I'm not a bad dude, but I'm dismissing those elements. That means in some way I'm hurting her. I'm not empowering her. I'm not saying, keep an eye on me. I'm a white man. I probably don't get what it's like to live in a black woman's world. If I say that to her, I'm saying something empowering. I'm helping the substance. I'm giving her a cocaine dose. So does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. If yeah. you no, I don't get okay. that. If you yeah. if you say to her, I'm I'm part of the I'm part of the bigger nexus. It's like mm. giving her a cocaine dose. Yes, I'm giving her some strength, some empowerment. I'm affirming what she's seeing that she's up against. I'm saying you're up against forces here, and then, then she's gonna feel oh. Thank you for saying that. I feel that. I got my eye on you now. I don't feel only like I should just listen to you, David. And that way I'm boosting her sense of power. Does it really work that way? Yes. And so what, then what happens next? Because, I mean, this, mm-hmm. you know, again, we're talking about activism. We're talking in the context of tremendous inequality and real oppression of entire groups of people. And a lot of the sadness and pain and anger that arises really on on both sides or on on the many sides of the different social groups that are that are suffering or that are oppressing or that are being oppressed whatever like for you thinking as a therapist and maybe thinking as a lawyer too like where where's the action part of it like where's the activism part of it yeah in my view i have to not only try to bring healing to that person in my private space but i have to go out into the world I ought to, some people like me, ought to go out into the world and address issues of sexism and racism, teach about sexism and racism, be part of protests, petitions, whatever whatever way you're moved, join clinics. I worked for a clinic in uh, Portland, Oregon. I won a pro bono award for giving away the most 
legal services. <laughs> I'm also a giver, so I overdo. But some of those things are good. But but just the charity, I'm not putting down the charity, the, the generosity of that, but it's not enough. My calling then is to educate people. So that means I have to educate people like that. I have to educate other counselors about that. I want to talk to the world and write books about that. I want to sit here with you and say, that's not only an individual problem. The whole culture has addictive elements. That means I deprive you as a culture of fulfilling certain needs of yours, make it harder for you to fulfill certain needs of yours. And because of that, you will have to look to fulfill those needs in the best ways you can. And that will probably not look as yummy. What did um, Langston News that he wrote, a dream deferred. What happens to a dream deferred? He wrote. Yeah. Right. And I can't remember the whole poem, but he's basically saying, does it dry up? Does it sag? Does it run syrupy sweet? It does something. Or does it explode? He says. Does yeah. it become an addiction? Does it become a, an an overdose laying on the street? Dreams deferred can become that. Yeah. One of the things that you do, as an activist and as a therapist is bring people together who have really different points of view. And one of the things that, one of the, I guess, pitfalls that activists can get into is that everybody in the group has pretty much exactly the same views and they're suspicious even perhaps at times of anybody who might think a little bit differently. That's, I suppose, on the one hand, you know, if you want to have a small group of people working together to get stuff done, Maybe it's good that you all are on the same page, but what is it like? What are the contexts in which you bring people together who think really, really differently about social issues? Mm -hmm. It's a really good question. In my view, and, it, it, and it's not the only view, I'm, so I'm saying it that way, not in my view, this is the right view, but in my view, activism needs to start addressing relationship that means you and I are different. We have to build relationship. We have to figure out how to get along. It doesn't mean like each other. It may mean figure out how to have conflicts with each other. That's fine also. But somehow we have to build those relationships. So I start seeing a little bit of you in me, a little bit of me in you, so that relationship gets built. And that has to happen across lines of diversity. So when I was in Poland a couple of years ago, then we brought together a number of different groups to talk about World War II history. So we had Russian groups, Poles, Jews, Israelis, Palestinians. We bring a whole bunch of people together, Germans. And here we are talking about World War II history. We have some very different opinions about that. The Poles feel run over by the Russians and the Germans, right? The Jews felt handed over and betrayed and murdered by the Poles and the Germans. Now we're sitting in the same room. These are amazing events. It's not easy. We disagree. We have a lot of pain between us, a lot of conflict between us. My approach, which comes from Arnon Mendel, what we call world work, is not to try to chill that out and help people speak calmly. We don't give out a talking stick so that people talk one at a time because cultures speak differently. So it's a diversity model. That means we have to learn. And the way we learn is by supporting the deepest part of what people are saying. So if someone looks furious, we don't say, calm down. We say, you are furious. You could probably, you probably want to kill somebody at this point. That actually helps people. It witnesses. It doesn't dismiss. It helps violence not happen. We've been doing it for a lot of years. We haven't seen any violence other than the rough words that people say to each other. 
But as a Jewish man, I learn so much in these situations. Can I tell you just one thing that I'm just coming up on my mind? So I went, the, I've been to Poland a couple of times because I also was part of a faculty with school there. And we were talking to Germans and Jews who started talking about World War II history. And this German guy comes over to me and he looks at me, young man, like 25. My father was in Hitler's army. And I said, oh, he put his arm around me. He sobbed. I swear I got healing. <laughs> I never, ex I didn't realize he was in prison, just like my ancestors, that he was in the camp. And the Germans at the, at the workshop, we had many Europeans there, a Swedish person would say, I'm from Sweden. An Italian person would say, I'm from Italy. The Germans would say, I'm from Europe. That's how much shame there was. I didn't know any of those things. Anyway, I'm just thinking about some of the events that get processed. Yeah. And that person sobbing on your shoulder, first of all, is probably going to heal better and is going to give you a healing that neither of you would ever have in a therapist office. Right. Yeah, it's a huge thing. It's so fascinating because he's 25. His parents, this is pretty common, his grandfather's in Hitler's army. His father has a lot of pain and shame around that and wants to protect his son from that awful story so doesn't raise his son with a big consciousness around that happening. So it skips a generation. Then the son is dreaming of Nazis every night. <laughs> that happens with Jews. It happens with Germans. It happens with Japanese who have ancestors who were around when the bomb dropped. There's somehow a sense it happened for me. A lot of Jews in this country, not all, their parents want to sort of say, you're not part of that world anymore. We won't talk about anti-Semitism. We're not going to talk about the Holocaust. We're going to leave that out. And then that person has all kinds of problems. They come to my office and I, as a Jew and I say, your parents never talked about Holocaust or anti-Semitism. They said, no, how do you know? To me, it's like glaringly obvious. There's a hole in that person's psyche. Yeah. And that person can have physical symptoms, all kinds of different things connected to a story. That person can't only heal in my office. They should go watch Schindler's List. They should connect with Jews. They should go to Israel. They should have take on Israeli and Palestinian issues. They should jump into the fray of those things. So in your mind, parents who are survivors of whether it be the Holocaust or anything else, should really be talking to their kids about it in some way or another, even if it's hard for the parents? Yes, it's better. It hap In the family dynamic, we see it. If I work with a, a person, I'm thinking of a number of different people like this, let's say it's a woman in her 40s who was victim of abuse in her family, with by, let's say, by a father or a grandfather. I've heard those kind of stories so many times. And then that woman, let's say, has children in her 20s. I'll say, do you ever talk to them about their grandparents? No, the last thing I want to do is have them have to carry that story. I said, you have to start talking to them about it. Otherwise, there's a hole that they can't see. And they'll start, I'm dreaming, they'll start finding themselves in relationships that look like relationships with the grandfather. How does it get passed down if it's not through the stories of the parents? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I have thoughts, but it's, but I don't really know is what I'm really saying. But it's it does. A, it, but it does. It does. And then the same thing happens with big cultural phenomena, right? If somebody says, we're black, middle class, we made it, we made it out of the ghetto. I want to give my children every opportunity. I don't want them to have to be subject to the racism, but I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not saying they should go back to the ghetto. 
everybody should have their freedom to, to do what's right for them. But if they say, I don't want to discuss the issues of racism, what it's like to end enter the world, what they're going to feel, what they're going to experience. I'd like to protect them from, from that. It's a good world. There's a lot of advantage we have. That person's going to struggle internally or externally or both. They could find themselves with addictions, trying to find something that they don't understand, pains, angers inside of them, end up in weird relationships. Anyway, yeah. just because that sense of we're protecting a person from a story that's theirs. One thing that you write about in your book, Revisioning Activism, is that it's not always the right thing to forgive somebody, which mm. really goes counter to the kind of narrative that we all have, like we're supposed to forgive, maybe not forget. Tell us about that. How does that work? Give us some examples. Mm -hmm. It's a really important topic. I, I was reading so many articles, because I write for Psychology Today, and I was reading a lot of articles nothing against psychology today, I'll say. But um, I was reading a lot of articles that were suggesting forgiveness around things. And I'm thinking of all the situations where I thought that would be the wrong thing to recommend. So I wrote an article on that. Just, I don't know. There's probably 70,000 people have read that article. Who knew, who knew? But I can see there was a lot of hunger for it. A lot of people, a lot of people were thanking me and telling me why that was helpful. And there were a lot of people writing to me that I was cruel and evil in saying that. I wasn't thinking about a religious format. Nonetheless, there are people like forgiveness is the root. So what happens in the, in the personal s sphere, if a person has been hurt or abused and has not much contact with that experience, they don't know that experience. They don't know, ouch, that really happened. That really hurt. I believe myself. Somebody else believes me. And you start, and I bring in the idea of forgiveness it ends up acting, going back to our original conversation, as a kind of dismissal. I haven't even seen your blood yet. I haven't said, show me where the bruise is on your arm. So I haven't seen, I haven't heard what it felt like. You might not know what it feels like. Many people don't know. I might have to slow them down and say, tell me more about that moment. Well, I, you know, it was really bad. Let's go back slowly. Then that person will start having feelings that belong to that scene. And then anger, which often belongs, and anger is almost always the seed of a certain power. I'm not saying people should walk around angry, but in anger, there's a fist that person may need that to finish a degree, to say, I have some strength now to stand up to things. So in that individual situation, the forgiveness idea too quickly, and too quickly could be three months, three years, or 30 years. Yeah. I don't have a sense that there's a timeline. That person has to show me that. Then in the culture, think about African-Americans being asked to be forgiving. The violence is still happening. Right. It hasn't stopped. I hit you today. I'm not hitting you. <laughs> I hit somebody today, and then I say, forgive me, but then I'm going to do it tomorrow. So what is this whole process? Then forgiveness starts to look more like, let's, act, let's make a dismissal of the entire dynamic that we're sitting in, which is violent, and make it go away. So that whenever it comes to the social issues, forgiveness is, I've got to be really, really careful about that. Now, if a, if a black person said, I feel forgiving, I'm not going to say don't. That's a longer discussion. Right. But if it's a white person saying, you should be forgiving, that's something like the perpetrator of the violence saying, don't be upset with me, right. <laughs> even though I'm still hurting you. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. Like, let's look at a movement 
like Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of reason to be angry. There's a lot of reason to have a nationwide movement bringing attention to the real, I mean, brutalization of particularly young black men, often unarmed. We know the stories. So you think about forgiveness, like how are you going to forgive people who, as you say, are going to keep doing the same thing over and over again, Mm -hmm. but also if you're not going to go on a path of forgiveness, what do you do with your pain? What do you do with your anger? You can walk around being consumed by it. And Mm -hmm. I think many people, for whatever their own personal reasons are, have gone through periods in their life short or long, where they are walking around consumed by anger. That's kind of no way to live either. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to try to remember two levels of answers. One is the individual and one is the cultural. The cultural activism, the social activism is, I am partially responsible for that person walking around that angry. Because I have seen this so many times. If that person expressed their anger and I could take some genuine responsibility for that. Not like, oh, I'm responsible, meaning I'm going to listen to that person until I get it and I moved and I learned something about why that person's angry that I never learned before. That will be humbling to me, genuinely. So I'm not saying, saying, oh, yes, I'm responsible, that I'm going to wake up a little bit. That person's anger will get better in that moment. That anger is satisfied. I'm not saying it all goes away, but I do play a role. I as a person, I as a white male, I as a white person in the culture. So if people get it, so that means if I'm going to be doing all lives matter, etc., and making a constant dismissal, I'm part of feeding that anger versus feeding that anger, meaning fueling it to go further versus nourishing the original pain that's, that anger is growing out of. So then I have a certain responsibility. I have to pick that up in a certain way. So if somebody writes all lives matter on a thread, on Facebook, then I have to say, let me tell you why that's difficult. That makes it less likely that the person's going to be in a rage, that black person who wrote that is going to be in a rage that day. That's a genuine thing. How do we do that on a social level? And again, I'm talking to you as an activist, Mm -hmm. not only as a therapist, which Mm -hmm. you also are, but like, how could we have, or where, if we do, do we have that kind of forum where people's rage, people's anger, people's experience can really be listened to in an effective way. Yeah, there are people doing that in different ways. So um, for me, it means in that case would be around race. That means it would be ultimately getting black and white folks together, ultimately. I say ultimately because there might be some steps beforehand because a lot of white people are not open, ready to be critiqued without having to defend themselves. In that case, that person needs to learn to defend themselves, but not at that moment. I think some people need to learn that they can't take a mirror that's that harsh. I can take as much, I can take more now at 61 than I can take at 51. (laughs) I can hear a person be furious with me and not only need to fight back, but hear. But that that grows. I need other people around me. white sisters and brothers standing with me to do that. So some of that is education in around race, let's say, in the white community. It could be men around around the, the gender issue. Um, 
And then it means getting people together and creating places where that can happen, where that those angers and rages are not suppressed. And when I've been in in large groups where, where race conflict has been a big part of the at least a few days of our work, one of the things that is the most enraging is when a more or less white progressive person says, let me slow it, let me back it up. Let's say there's a white person who says something that has some benign slash unintentional, benign, what's benign? Unintentional racism in it, and a black person gets upset. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I live with every day. And the white person says, I don't even know what you're talking about. I didn't do anything. And it starts getting hot. At that moment, there can be, and I've seen this many times, a more or less progressive person, they're usually white, who says, let's chill out, everybody. Don't get so upset. We can work this out in a more peaceful way. That's the most racist comment in the room. Is that right? Yes, because it dismisses, denies, almost blames that black person for being angry. Anger is not such a good thing. And it says, my way of processing things and what's comfortable for me is the way for everybody. <laughs> That's not intentional. But I'm thinking, but I just said to, every, I just said to a black community, you should do it the white way. <laughs> And so what's the right way? Like, what would you do in that situation? I'd say that's, I would slow everything down. If we, if we had the kind of environment where we could do that, I'd slow everything down and said, whoa, that's such a strong thing to say. Let's talk about styles of communication. How much anger can people handle? How much emotion can people handle? Dear black community, what's it like for you when some, when us, all us white people, so I don't scapegoat that one person, right? Because it's a whole culture that wants to do that. What happens when somebody does that? When we say over here, please don't get so upset. And they say, we would rather you use the N-word to my face. <laughs> They'll say, at least I know what's happening. I know you feel that. Don't put it away. I'm glad to know you're thinking that. This is a real conversation. So that's then an enlightening moment for many people to hear just that. I recently went to the James Baldwin documentary. It's called I Am Not Your Negro. And it was, it's a brilliant documentary, I think very important for all Americans to see, very well made, profound on so many levels. And one of the things that was so striking to me was I was watching that movie and there was footage of Birmingham 1963 and the 50s and the 60s and then, you know, Ferguson in the in the last few years and the United States of America, all the kinds of protests and police in riot gear and those faces of white supremacists then and now. And I'm looking at this and except for a few details like the quality of the film or video footage, you don't even know what year you're watching. It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed enough. Why not? The first thing I'm, I'm remembering the movie and and um, and hearing what you're saying. The first thing it it just makes me want to sob. Those scenes, you know, yeah. it's so painful. The hatred and the dehumanization, and, and it's so painful to look at. And one of the beauties of that movie is that it shows very blatantly. This is what you're looking at, dear America. Let's say this is what to look at. So for me, that goes back again to the witnessing. Can we look, not say that that's gone, that's history, let's forgive, let's 
get over that. We're not there anymore. I think we haven't looked enough yet as a around race now. There's other social issues for sure around race. More or less white community, that means me, hasn't looked. I haven't said, when they showed that lynching picture, I haven't said, I haven't looked at that and said, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to look. I'm going to see. I'm going to see what that body looks like. I'm going to have to deal with how horrible it is to really spend time with that particular image alone. What happens inside me? What happens to my gut? Do I close down? Is it too much for me? Am I glad I'm not seeing that? It doesn't have to be that that one image. But the looking, I don't know if this is true, but it's as if, like with many symptoms, they amplify when they're not addressed. You get an infection, sometimes the body takes care of that. But if not, it's going to grow. <laughs> I'm putting my hand on my arm like I can see a pussy thing and things like this. It's growing. And it's almost like the symptoms grow and get bigger. Why? I don't know. But one good thing that can happen when it grows is it makes it more likely that we'll pay attention to it. Now my body's really hurting. I can't get away with drinking coffee anymore because my stomach's going to burn. Finally burns enough. And in some way, I think if there's something good, I'm putting quotes around that, what's good about more violence, about it is that the amplification makes us look and then maybe some of us can bear witness and not turn away. But I mean, it seems to me that from abolition to the present, there have always been people looking and the people who are, say, white supremacists, they've never been looking and they're not looking now. So the people who most need to look aren't doing it and the people who... who care, you know, black, white, brown, every other color, Mm -hmm. we've been here all along. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, a couple of things happen because it's such a feeling topic. And as you say that the first thing that happens, I notice I take like a deep breath and I like want to sink like into a depression, not a clinical depression. Like it makes me down. It makes me depressed, a little hopelessness. I don't think that's bad, by the way. I think that's just what's happening inside. I'm just, oh my gosh. In some way, in some way, I would say, if I was with a group of people, I'd say, do you feel that sort of hopeless, things haven't changed feeling? And if a number of other people said yes, then I would say, maybe we should all have a grief circle today about how painful it is. Maybe that's part of the healing. Seriously? Then, yes. Yeah. yeah. I would say, let's grieve. Let's sob about it. Let's talk about how much has been unseen and how bad it is for a while. Let's get hopeless and fall on the floor and say, what can we do about this thing? Maybe there's nothing we can do. Maybe we need a little bit of that, that going down, getting depressed, having a little bit more blues, you could say. What's that? There's a blues line. I've been down so long that down don't worry me no more. Maybe we'll get in touch with something, what it's like to be so down. Yeah. But it's still, I mean, it, this question still remains, and I'm mm-hmm. haunted by the look on the faces of the people who were laughing and jeering, both at the lynching that that is shown in that movie, and as they were, you know, throwing stones and whatever at the teenage girl, the first African-American girl to go to a particular school, and they, you know, it's all about whites only. What is behind those faces? Like, where, 
where does that hatred come from? Mm, this is great. I mean, I have two things I want to say. First is those stones are still being thrown literally or psychologically. Yeah. So then we as white people should notice it. Even if it's a word, we should notice it so that it, we say, wait a second, I saw a stone got thrown and do as much as we can. But where does that come from? Where does it come from? That, like you're saying, that almost pleasure, enjoyment at the perpetration of violence and hatred yeah, towards another. By people another. who never did anything to them. Right. I have to say, I mean, I have psychological ideas about it. But again, deep down, I think, I don't really know. Is it part of a human condition? And then we, then some people have found some victims. The victims are important, right? The name the perpetrator, name the victims. I'm not saying get rid of that. This is just the human condition. I'm saying that as a sarcastic way. I can't say that because then I dismiss as a Jew if someone said, oh, the Holocaust is part of the human condition. They don't say that led to certain people killing certain other people and naming them. That should be done as it should be with race. But what, what is in that condition? I don't know. What holds it together? That I have ideas about. That the person, when I've worked with individuals who have that kind of hatred in them, then there's, for some, an enormous amount of being overpowered, hurt, overpowered, and run over, you could say, in various ways, and then psychologically looking for a way to feel their own potency. Let me let me give the example with the when in working with the, the Germans and Jews. Then there were a lot of Germans especially after World War I, that felt so run over, so decimated. There's an intense, shaming, disempowered sense. Then that's ripe to feed people a sense of you're big and strong and powerful and incredible and great. So there's a ripeness for that particular Hitler-esque, Nazi-esque message. That's not going to be sufficient, but there's a ripeness in it. So if the psyche of a person or a group or a nation is decimated like that, then there's a ripeness for picking up a weapon, their anger, their power, metal, guns, bullets. And scapegoating somebody. And scapegoating and wielding it and then finding some pl- somebody to do that with. So that's surely one thing that we can see. One of the amazing things about the Germans, not this is generalization, some, there's some Germans who aren't like this at all, the Germans have a sense about that problem, being decimated, rolled over, trying to be pick themselves up in a way that then did great damage, being genuinely ashamed about that and not wanting to continue that. Not many groups have gone through both. Now I'm down, now I'm up, now I saw what I did when I was up, up, not just up, meaning I, I used my power in violent ways, now I saw what I did, now I'm ashamed of that, now I want to find a different way. Many Germans have made that whole cycle. Very few Americans have made that down. Now I'm up. Now I see how awful I am and ashamed I am. Many Germans have taken in. Right. Not, the, not a, just a negative shame, meaning, oh my gosh, what have I done? Americans, some, but by and large, I, can't, I, I must never see that happen in this country where people would approach indigenous people with tears. There is some of that and say, oh my gosh, what have I done? Genuinely. Right. <laughs> right. That's a, an amazing thing. That happens in Germany more. And so you're talking about like white people in America need basically to 
look at what this, like the da- the negative side of what this country has been and is, and there's a lot of pain in that that people don't really want to feel. Yeah. To feel one's culpability for hurting another, and it makes me want to cry again. I'm for some reason that's coming up sitting here. To feel one's own genuine culpability for the pain of another, that's agony. If to really feel it, I work with parents who that this is what I did to my child. If it, not just like I did that and you're right, right, but to kind of go, oh my gosh, I lost it. I was not at home in my own feelings, body heart and took out a violence on somebody who matters a lot to me. That's a pretty soul-shaking, earth-shaking moment. It is for a group also. I think it's mm. it gets tricky when you've got people like, well, you and me, we're both children of immigrants, 20th century immigrants. I'm going to go ahead and... I know I am. I think that's the same mm. with you, right? Mm-hmm. So we weren't really descendants of slave owners. We were not descendants of the people who did the genocide of native people across the country. We weren't part of Manifest Destiny. Does it sit differently in different groups of people depending on their ancestry? Yeah, somewhat, yes. Yes, I, I definitely work with people who feel that I've been part of this, some my generation or a recent generation, and I know that that's a special pain. We were talking earlier about what some people need to do when they face that, meaning their healing might mean doing something in the world to make a better world around that issue. Right? They might have to go out and say, I'm going to address anti-Semitism in the world as an activist to address the pain that they were part of. Um, I think it was William Faulkner who said, the past is not over, the past is not even the past. He said, and James Baldwin has something similar. Mm -hmm. History is not history. Now, for some people who are more privileged, it's nice to think of history in the past, but for some it's not. So what that means for me is a number of things. One, I want to go back to this denial, dismissal, blame thing. When someone does something that denies, dismisses, or blames another around these social issues, It is a perpetration that impacts that crime in an enormous way today. So let's give the example. So if if a if an African American is says somebody says, How come you protested so aggressively, violently? You broke a window. Right? I wish they wouldn't break windows. Okay, great. But that's not okay to say yet, because I haven't yet borne witness to an expression of being violated. So if I go too quickly or right away or maybe at all to say, let's analyze that, this is bad, the media is going to say, look, this is not good protesting, etc. It then says, the way you're acting is because of you. It has nothing to do with me and the culture. I'm dismissing that. I'm dismissing your background. I'm dismissing racism. I'm dismissing slavery. I'm dismissing 400 years of difficulty. I'm dismissing what you're like in the schools and why and the bank loans that you're not getting and the way law enforcement is being meted out differentially. I'm dismissing all of that at that moment. That is not just the dismissal of history. That is current. That is violence. That has profound traumatic effects on a person right now 
the doing of that because I'm more or less acting like that's not here anymore. That itself, I don't care if it was 400 years ago, doing that denial dismissal of what's happening, but slavery is over, that is a violent statement. I'm not making an accusation about the intent. I'm saying it violates, it hurts, it makes blood, and it, ca- and it causes trauma and touches that original wound and makes it living wound right now. What is your own form of personal activism right now in the world? I mean, there's different levels. I am really wanting now to make more dialogue and the ability to dialogue. So that means to dialogue across differences because I would love for to people to build relationship. I just rewatched the Harvey Milk uh, movie and there was a point at which he said, everybody has to come out. <laughs> and some people saying, you know, it's not right for everyone to come out right away. As a therapist, I think that's true, right? Yeah. It has to be. But he was saying, people vote differently if they know one person <laughs> who was gay. They had to be have a relationship. The relationship was necessary. If they had that relationship, they were going to vote different on whatever proposition that he was speaking about. So I think uh, relationship is big. Now, many people are not ready for dialogue. Many people need, and this is going to be more true of the more privileged you are, the more likely that you're going to choose to work on those problems, not in dialogue, but with, in the privacy of your home, and in meditation, with therapies, and zendo, somewhere where you're more safe, in a way. Yay for safety. However, that doesn't allow the interaction to happen and the relationship to build for that German person to cry on my shoulders and for me to go, oh my gosh, a German person's crying. That, that, that can't happen, or for me to see you that you're human, I'm human, that can't happen in that way. So dialogue has to happen. That doesn't just mean person A says, I'm a Republican, this is what I think. Person B says, I'm a Democrat, this is what I think, right? That's more like a legal debate. That means we need body. Feelings are so important. Part of the issue is to feel. If we can't feel, then it denies feeling, body, and then there goes issues of sexism and racism are already built into that, if that makes any sense. So if we all kind of like get together Mm -hmm. and dialogue and express our feelings, Mm -hmm. is institutionalized racism and sexism going to shift? I think it will. Really? Yeah, I really do. I'm not saying that we shouldn't address it on the social front and legal front also. So I'm also like groups that say, you know, the NAACP or which our attorney general says was an anti-American organization. Jeff Sessions. That's what he called the NAACP. Sorry. Just comes in. So I think I'm glad that there's a Southern Poverty uh, Law Center that's keeping track of things. But yes, I do think consciousness can change. Relationship can change. It can also lead to people voting, making changes. But there needs to be more uh, relationship built so that I see you. I'm not only sitting here with Mary Charlotte and David then some moments I should sit here as a man with a woman and then talk about what happens gender-wise and that will make an uncomfortable conversation potentially. And I think that should happen. That could help build something. So I think the more that happens, um, the better. I even think sometimes I'm remembering a thing that the process work group I'm involved in, we did something in um, 
in Oakland many years ago. And there was a lot of rioting going on. And we brought maybe a couple hundred people, black and white people together to talk about racism and have conflicts. The whole city was more chill for a couple of days after that. Did it cause that? I don't know. I, get, I can't prove that. But I have seen events happen that change the field, the atmosphere, the energy around the scene can sometimes change, um, even if it doesn't look like the scene is that good that we created, even if it just looks like people being upset with each other. Somehow something may happen. Yeah. I mean, it's just I'm looking at the situation now where we have hate crimes on the rise and where we have people who were maybe suppressing their racist or prejudiced uh, various kinds of tendencies who now feel absolutely open to saying those things. So in a way, there's more expression, but it's kind of more heinous. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. So it's so violent what's happening. Oh, it's so violent. I'm remembering... Um, talking to a African-American friend on the night of the election. And she'd be okay with me telling this because I've talked with her. And, and, and uh, I was on the phone with her and her grandson, who was in his 20s, he was already in a sort of a rocky shape uh, psychologically. And um, he woke up and said, who won the election? And she said, Trump did. And he started screaming and said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. They're going to kill me now. They're going to kill me now. And we had a, I had to help her call the police and have him taken to a hospital. That's how desperate. Yeah. You know? So some of it is less stability, but it's a whole culture that's not stable. Anyways, I'm just thinking with you about the level of violence. What do we do with that level of violence? Oh my gosh. What do we do with that level of violence? There has to be different levels. There has to be people who are going to deal with that legalistically, I hope. There has to be people who are going to be on the front lines, bearing witness, saying, I'm right here. I'm going to stand between you and that person. I'm going to disarm you. I'm going to do something about that. Um, there has to be lots of education. There has to be dialogues between you and me where we might disagree. And then you'll say, David, the way you said that, I think is also another form of violence. I feel it. It's less of a cut, but I still feel it. So that we start catching it in the moment and don't only make it local. Local meaning it existed over there. It's not sitting here in my living room also. So I think there's all those levels have to have to be worked on. Is there anything that makes you feel hopeful? Mm-hmm. When I see one person, even if it's myself, and I learn often, learn something new, learn meaning get it, a deeper learning, I moved. Like the other night, uh, I put on that event with the James Baldwin film, and then we had a dialogue after. And a woman, she was in her late 70s, and she was the first person who spoke. And she said, I grew up on those innocent quote-unquote, images, the Doris days, the ones that made this white, pretty, white picket fence dream of life that had all the pain of native and black blood underneath. She said, and I'm saying it in different words than she did. She said, I grew up with that. I believed that. She said, now I see it differently. So here's a woman in her late 70s, I'm going to take the rest of my life and, make sh- and learn about this now. I don't want to think that way anymore. That 
stays with me. I think, oh my gosh, there's a person, she's not 20, she's, I don't want to be ageist about it, but we could say she could be like, say, well, that's where I grew up in. Look, you know, I, what am I going to do? I, I took that in. There was nothing, I wouldn't mean it, right? But here's a person who says that, and I think, amen. Or there was a woman of color who said, I don't feel safe in a group that's mostly white talking about racism. I, I'm not sure she didn't use those exact words. To some people that might be small, I know the psyche of people will take that in because she was speaking not as me facilitating being smart from her genuine truth. She had an emotional authenticity <laughs> that enters the room that has a certain power from that authenticity. That will seep into people's nighttime dreams. I know that because I've seen it. They'll know somebody's unsafe just because I'm sitting here with two other, with a room of mostly white people. Anyway, yeah, that gives me some hope. David Bedrick is an attorney, an author, a therapist. His new book is Revisioning Activism, Bringing Depth, Dialogue, and Diversity to Individual and Social Change. David, thank you so much for being mm, with us. Such a touching conversation. Thank you for the great questions. You can go to davidbedrick.com to find out more about his new book, Revisioning Activism, and also his previous book, Talking Back to Dr. Phil. And we will put links to those things on radioactivism.net. And you can email me with any comments and questions, mc at radiocafe.media. That's all for now. We'll see you next time.